You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon. Welcome to the global launch of the World Justice Project's Annual Rule of Law Index 2020 edition. It's hot off the press today. This annual Rule of Law Index has become a touchstone, a touchstone and an invaluable tool of comparative analysis for the global rule of law community. Today we're broadcasting from the headquarters of the United States Institute of Peace. I'm David Young. I'm a vice president here at USIP. I lead USIP's Center for Applied Conflict Transformation. This center houses all of the thematic peacebuilding practices at USIP, and these practices include governance, justice, and security, which is very uh, deeply involved in rule of law work. The United States Institute of Peace was founded by the US Congress in 1984. We're a national nonpartisan independent institute. We're dedicated to the proposition that peace is possible, practical, and indeed essential to US and global security. Our vision is a simple one, a world without violent conflict. We pursue this vision by, by empowering frontline peace builders in conflict zones with the tools, knowledge, and training they need to build a just and sustainable peace. We're honored here at USIP to be hosting this global launch of the Annual Rule of Law Index for a second time. We're grateful for our partnership with our colleagues at the World Justice Program. A special thanks to their board chair, William Hubbard, and their executive director, Betsy Anderson. Our two organizations are partners in this endeavor because we both believe that the rule of law is a key contributor to a country's transition from fragility to resilience. We also believe that the rule of law is an integral element of the foundation of a just and sustainable peace. We're happy that all of you could join us for this webcast. Please engage this conversation on Twitter. Please follow uh, the handles at USIP or uh, at VWJP. T-H-E-W-J-P. And if you're tweeting, please use hashtag R-O-L-Index. Our forum today will take place in two parts. The first part is a set of short individual presentations about the Rule of Law Index, and in particular, the 2020 findings. We will have three speakers, Ted Pacone, the World Justice Project's Chief Engagement Officer. Delighted to have Ted on this stage. He and I have worked on promoting rule of law internationally for maybe even three decades. Next will be Joe Foti, who's the Chief Research Officer at the Open Government Partnership. Thanks, Joe, for standing in today for your CEO, Sanjay Pradhan. Sanjay wasn't feeling well today. Uh, we wish him well at home. Hi, Sanjay. Thanks to you and your team for the great work that OGP continues to do. And our third presenter will be Alejandro Ponce, 
who's the World Justice Project's chief research officer. Alejandro continues to be the main driver uh, of the creation and production of this important index every year. The second part of our forum will take uh, place in the format of a panel. We'll have three panelists, World Justice Project's exec Executive Director Betsy Anderson, Professor Margaret Lewis from Seton Hall University's Law School, and a USIP colleague Maria Stefan, who heads up USIP's team on nonviolent action. The panel will be moderated by another USIP colleague, Philippe Leroux Martin. Philippe is the head of our governance, justice, and security team here at USIP. So I want to give a special thanks to the lead organizers for today's forum and webcast, to Ted Pacon and Joel Martinez from the World Justice Project, and to four USIP colleagues, Philippe, Debbie Leong Fenton, Danielle Gray, and Stephen Ruder. So on behalf of all of the colleagues at our two organizations, I want to thank you for joining us in this somewhat unusual format. I know it's probably a bit like watching March Madness basketball in an empty arena, but because of this, we're so happy that you could nevertheless join us and be part of this important discussion about the rule of law and peace building. So now I'd like to welcome to the stage Ted Pacon. Thank you, David, and good afternoon, everyone. Ted Pacone, Chief Engagement Officer from the World Justice Project, and on behalf of our board, our officers, and our staff, I would like to welcome and thank you all for tuning in today to learn about the latest findings from the World Justice Project Rule of Law Index, our effort to measure the rule of law worldwide. We owe a special thanks to the United States Institute of Peace for co-sponsoring and hosting this event. We are great admirers of the Institute's efforts to promote peace around the world, and it is a real honor to be working with you all to disseminate our latest rule of law findings. We would also like to thank the many supporters of the World Justice Project Rule of Law Index, including our League of Law Firms and Law Departments. For those of you who are new to the World Justice Project, we are an independent, multidisciplinary organization working to advance the rule of law around the world. We do this in several ways. First, by collecting and analyzing original, independent rule of law data presented in the Rule of Law Index, which you will hear a lot more about in just a few moments, as well as producing thematic reports on key rule of law topics like our global insights on access to justice and our Mexico State's Rule of Law Index, which measures rule of law performance in each of Mexico's 32 states. Second, we support research, scholarship, and teaching about the importance of the rule of law, its relationship to development, and effective strategies to strengthen it. And third, we are building an engaged global network of policymakers, experts, and activists through strategic convenings and knowledge exchanges, coordinated campaigns, and locally-led initiatives to advance the rule of law. We are particularly proud of our biennial World Justice Forum and invite you to please save the date for our next forum to be held May 25th to 28th, 2021 in The Hague, the Netherlands. One might ask, why should we care about the rule of law? 
We know from research and experience that effective rule of law reduces corruption, combats poverty and disease more effectively, and protects people from injustices large and small. It is the foundation for communities of justice, opportunity, and peace. With more rule of law comes higher GDP, greater democracy and peace, and better health and education outcomes. Beyond these correlative effects, the rule of law is an indispensable principle in its own right, for it reminds us that we are all endowed with fundamental rights to human dignity and justice, and that no one is above the law. For more than a decade, we've worked to promote a universal definition of the rule of law and rigorous technical indicators for measuring it. In summary, we define the rule of law as a durable system of laws, institutions, norms, and community commitment that delivers four universal principles. First, everyone is accountable under the law. Second, the laws are clear, just, and evenly applied. Third, the process of enacting, administering, and enforcing laws is open. And fourth, justice is impartial and accessible to all. To measure how these rule of law principles are experienced and perceived by the general public worldwide, we created the WJP Rule of Law Index, drawing on surveys carried out in 128 countries and jurisdictions in every region of the world. The index is a diagnostic tool for identifying a country's strengths and weaknesses in areas such as fundamental rights, justice delivery, corruption, open government, and effective checks and balances. It is the most comprehensive data set of its kind, and it is considered the world's leading source for original data on the rule of law. It is our hope and intention that these findings will be a powerful resource for advocates, policymakers, researchers, businesses, legal professionals, and others looking to improve the rule of law in their countries. Now I would like to introduce Joe Foti from the Open Government Partnership. Thank you, Joe, for stepping in and agreeing to speak today. We really appreciate it. The floor is yours. Hello, everyone. Thank you. Um, truly wonderful to be here with all of you. Thank you very much, uh, Ted, for your introduction. And thanks so much to the uh, World Justice Project for inviting me here today and for all the work that you do. So I want to talk about some sources of hope in a time of generalized despair, um, about rebuilding the rule of law in a time of deep citizen distrust in, in institutions and continued threats to democracy. Let me begin with uh, the story of my friend and colleague, Aidan Ayakuze from Tanzania. Aidan is the director of a well-renowned Tanzanian organization called Twaweza and one of my organization's leaders. In October of 2018, Twaweza released a public opinion poll showing that President John Magafuli's popularity had declined. Four days later, his passport was seized on grounds that he had violated the Official Data Act, which created a state monopoly on the collection and publication of data. He was immediately cut off from travel to international events, from meeting with overseas partners, and from sharing ideas on how to improve government. A year and a half later, the investigations are still going on. 
with no end in sight and no transparency as to the process to restore his passport. We mark his absence at our international meetings with an empty chair. Aiden's story is a story of inf about information suppression, of curved civil liberties, of abuses of power, of rising populism and authoritarianism. And Aiden's story is by no means the worst, nor is it unique. Rather, it's all too common story among those who strive to make their governments work for them rather than for the officials. Indeed, the last several years have seen an erosion at the foundations of how we govern ourselves and how we are governed. For the first time in decades, the rule-based government, democratically governed societies that we have struggled for for years are still under attack. I work for the Open Government Partnership. It's a global network of reformers from civil society and government across 78 countries who have agreed to make governments more transparent, accountable, and participatory. We work on open government, but we understand that it's part of a bigger uh, matrix of issues within rule of law. And when we were founded by eight prominent democracies in 2011, perhaps we assumed too much. We assumed that people would be free to think for themselves, to speak their minds freely, to join together, and to act freely to voice their concerns to their governments. We had assumed that economies grew, so too with the strength of their institutions and their checks and balances. We had assumed that the voices of citizens would mean less corruption, better public services, and more trust. We never thought that it would be easy or without a struggle, but the road has not been as straight as we had hoped. In too many countries, people like Aiden have not been able to speak their minds. The world has become more dangerous for journalists and activists, and this is even true in many of the founding countries of our partnership. Yet we still believe in the power of open, accountable, and democratic governance. Indeed, the evidence, as Ted was laying out, of their effectiveness grows day by day. But the trend towards personal rule, the rule of man over the rule of law, has cast a shadow over this growing body of evidence. But this is not a time for us to despair. And I'll let you in on a little secret, which is there are reformers everywhere. Even in some of the most closed countries and closed spaces where we work, there are reformers in civil society and government working to improve the rule of law. At the Open Government Partnership, where I work, or OGP, we are seeing more courageous reformers working towards more responsible, more responsive, accountable, and inclusive systems as a countervailing force to this distrust. Across all of our countries, government reformers and civil society groups have co-created more than 4,000 reform commitments. Let me show, share a few examples of where I think it can help to uh, restore the rule of law in their societies one incremental reform at a time. So the first area is transparency, um, which is covered by the rule of law index. It's a critical element to ensure more responsive governments. Reformers everywhere are empowering citizens with meaningful information. To take one example, in Uruguay, the government's Atu Servicio portal publishes vital health care information, enabling citizens to track their health care choices, uh, tracking costs, comparing providers, viewing treatment times online. But this is just not enough by itself, this transparency, and that's a lesson we've learned. It requires accountability and, more importantly, access to justice. Let's say that I'm a Uruguayan citizen. I use Atu Servicio for a doc to help me find a doctor who's going to help me with my medical problem. I do my research. I go select a doctor. I go see them. They provide me the treatment, and when it comes time for payment, they ask me to pay far more than uh, the portal has indicated that I should pay. 
I know that it's unfair. I know they're not telling the truth. At that moment, I have no choice but to pay. So what use is transparency or openness if at this point I feel like I've been cheated, I have no way of holding the doctor to account? Of what use is an open data portal if the legal system is too complicated or unfair to let me try to deal with this issue? It becomes a legal issue. And so this is where open government requires the rule of law, and as the rule of law index and the recent access to justice report from the World Justice Project show, many people with unresolved justice issues just don't even realize that they have a legal issue. And if they do, they often continue to have them be unresolved, either because of the lack of legal help or because the institutions that provide that justice are unfair. These problems can fester, become much bigger, become life problems, and they can become, they're in fact more acute for marginalized populations. So today we'll hear on whether there's been progress in this area in civil and criminal justice. And for us, having the data that WJP produces is really essential because it helps move general complaints and general ideas to specific reforms that governments can take in the next few years. And indeed, we're seeing a growth in effort to address justice problems beyond just transparency. But beyond the, the problems of individuals, it's not just that individuals have problems, but the institutions themselves must be function. And while Uruguay is a good example of a, of a well-governed country that's been seeing decades of improvement, in too many places the institutions are just not capable of providing just outcomes. And this again is where the data and the action can be more promising. So in OGP, um, we're working to move contracts into broad daylight. In Ukraine, to tackle the capture of public procurement by powerful interests, young reformers have leveraged OGP to expand and enhance engagement on some of the contracting platforms, ProZoro and DoorZoro. Before, contracts were handed out in backroom deals, and now they're disclosed as open data, so citizens can search them, and importantly, report suspect transactions. But more importantly, this oversight is done with the involvement of investigative journalists, private sector organizations, and civil society organizations. The, world, the rule of law index helps us to identify concerns across these countries and helps identify where we might be able to expand this type of reform to other places. Even but there's a third area, which is civic space. <clears throat> Even as evidence for open government begins to strengthen and help public services, limiting corruption, state capture, there's a more fundamental and even more difficult area. We started talking with a story about Aiden, who's in trouble for his opinion poll. When we begin, like I said, we assumed that colleagues like Aiden would be able to collect information, share data, and, and process that data and publish it free of restriction. In many cases, unfortunately, we were wrong. And some have called this a problem of fundamental rights, others civic space, others basic freedoms, and so civil liberties. Whatever term we describe it with, it's the capability of people to shape their own futures, individually or collectively, with minimal interference. By whatever name, we think that OGP and World Justice Project together can help begin to tackle the issue of improving civic space. We can provide a means of implementation, we in OGP, that is, can provide a means of implementation to help secure concrete reforms, but we need a WJP's honest assessment of where the gaps are and what governments can do to help empower our network of reformers. 
So we can't do any of this, of course, as I said, without evidence and data. For this, for our activities, the data is paramount. So we need to know what the problems are at the country level, where the gaps are, which policies are the gaps, and what kind of problems people are facing, and what they're experiencing as they try to resolve them. Without that data, what happens is governments engage only in their comfort areas. Without the data, the problems of individual activists or individual citizens remain their individual problems they, rather than social phenomenon that policy reform can tackle. And this is the strength of the World Justice Project. And hopefully over the next 18 months, we've been collaborating over the last 18 months, and we will continue to collaborate. Uh, just two quick examples of how helpful this has been, and we look forward to it is for last year's OGP Global Report, our first ever, we used the Rule of Law Index to look at issues as specific as police harassment during public assemblies and whether this was prevalent in OGP countries. And we found that perceptions of this were in fact greater than number of interference with professional NGOs. Um, we've collaborated on access to justice more specifically and now we have uh, five and a growing number of members of OGP countries trying to tackle the issues pointed out by WJP. So we will continue to collaborate in the future um, including on issues of criminal justice and open justice, as well as how the justice sector can promote rule of law through their open government work. So in closing, I'm sure that all the news we hear today will not be good news, unfortunately. Um, maybe very little of it will be. Um, but I also know that, at least among our network and among WJP's partners, <clears throat> the resolve for reform is as strong as ever perhaps not at the tops of governments, than the middling ranks of today's activists who become tomorrow's reformers. And work like the Rule of Law Index helps us map the way forward to hear from both citizens and from experts how they experience the rule of law or its absence. We look forward to working even more closely together going forward and extend our warmest congratulations to the World Justice Project on today's launch of the Rule of Law Index. So now, I will introduce uh, Alejandro Ponce, uh, World Justice Project's Chief Research Officer, who will be walking through some of the key findings of the 2020 World Justice Project Rule of Law Index. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Joe. It is a pleasure to present the findings of the 2020 Rule of Law Index report. Uh, the report that you have in your hands and that you can look on the website is the result of assessments of more than 130,000 people and more than 4,000 legal practitioners uh, in 128 countries around the world. Uh, it summarizes the perceptions and experiences on dealing with the government, the police, the courts, their perceptions about accountability, openness, violence, or their experiences. Let me repeat, 130,000 people and 4,000 legal experts who contribute their expertise, who contribute their views and the status of the rule of law, and that our team collected, checked, and aggregated into the rankings and scores that you will see today. The information that we collect
The information that we collect is organized into eight factors. Constraints on government power, absence of corruption, open government, fundamental rights, order and security, regulatory enforcement, civil justice, criminal justice, and an additional one, informal justice, recognizing that in many countries it is an important form of justice. These indicators reflect two basic ideas, that the law imposes limits on the exercise of power by authorities, but also that the state limits the actions of the members of society and has duties towards its citizens so that the public interest is served, that violence is controlled, and that individuals have access to mechanisms to uh, solve their problems and redress their grievances. These indicators are further disaggregated into 44 sub-indicators. These sub-indicators are presented in the report that it's online as well as on the website. This year report includes 128 countries and jurisdictions in total. We have included two new countries as compared to the previous report. We have included Kosovo and Gambia. The assessments, the rankings and scores are the product of aggregating more than 500 variables drawn from the assessments of 130,000 household interviews and 4,000 expert surveys in 128 countries that represent approximately 94% of the world's population. Let me now pass to some of the, the findings. First, before going to the global results, I would like to invite you to check the results in our website where you can find first the rankings tables. This table shows, for example, the scores between uh, in a scale between zero and one for all the 128 countries where one signifies higher adherence to the rule of law. You will be able to see the scores organized by region or by income group. You will also be able to see the scores uh, organized by factor. So for each one of the eight factors that we measure, and more importantly, you will be able to see the scores for each one of the 128 countries. In each one of the country profiles, you will be able to see the scores, the rankings, the income group rankings, as well as the regional rankings, and importantly, the scores for each one of the 44 sub-factors that are included in the report and the index. You will, be able, you will be able to see as well the changes in each one of the factors from last year to this year as well as whether the changes were statistically significant or not. Let me turn now to the global results of the report. Before going into the report, into the global findings, I would like to emphasize that we have a lot of different stories when we look at the country-specific results. And I invite you to look at the country-specific results. As Joe was saying, we still find a lot of stories of success in many individual countries, and it's important to look at those at what countries are doing and to monitor their progress as well. First, I want to go to the top and bottom performance. The top performers in this year report are Denmark, Norway, and Finland, and the bottom three performers are Democratic Republic of Congo, Cambodia, and Venezuela. These countries performed the same way as they did in 2019. 
Next, we turn to the countries that improve the most. In the map, you will be able to see just how several countries actually improve by several percentage points, most notably Malaysia, that increased by 5.2%, and Ethiopia, that increased by 5.3%, driven mainly by changes in constraints on government power and in fundamental rights, and in the case of Malaysia, as well as changes in regulatory enforcement. We can also see changes, uh, the countries that perform or that show the most improvement and the countries that show the most decline in each one of the regions of the world. Uh, for the improvers, on top of Malaysia, Ethiopia, we can also see how El Salvador and Afghanistan show impro important improvements. On the other side, we see countries that show uh, significant declines, such as Iran, Cameroon, Egypt, and Brazil. This chart plots the status of the rule of law, just how the rule of law is changing um, from the previous year uh, on one axis, and then in the other axis, how it changed in the last five years. What we can see there is that uh, most of the countries that show a decline in rule of law this year also show a decline in the previous years. So importantly, however, some, so that you will be able to see that in the left corner. Now, importantly as well is that you will see that countries that actually experienced a decline in last year, many countries actually have experienced improvement over the previous year or the other way around. Countries that have showed declines over the previous year have been able to show improvements over the last year, which shows that changes in the rule of law are not necessarily monotonic over time. This picture shows the uh, scores, how the score, the changes in the score over time plot against the score in 2020. What you will be able to see is that most countries or more countries declined in the rule of law performance than improved. Overall, 55 countries declined, 40 countries improved, and the rest remained unchanged. This is, has happened, the fact that more countries are declining than improving for the third year in a row. When viewing, uh, when looking at the drivers of uh, these changes, we see a very interesting picture. First, the drivers of these declines are mainly constraints on government power, fundamental rights, and absence of corruption. In these areas, more countries declined than improved during the previous year. This pattern actually is something that we have seen over the years. In these areas, when you look at the shaded area, more countries have declined than improved over the last five years, with the largest decrease in the area of fundamental rights with approximately 65% of countries have shown a, decri a decline over the last five years. On the other side of the spectrum, we see that this year, more countries improved and declined in the area of civil justice. And when looking at the five-year picture, we see that in the area of regulatory enforcement, more countries uh, improved than declined by a significant margin.
In the report, as well as in the website, you will be able to see the changes from one year to the next over the last five years. As I was mentioning before, what you will be able to see is that changes are not constant, changes are not monotonic. So countries that are declining now do not necessarily decline, did not necessarily decline yesterday. There is a lot of variation and a lot of it is coming actually for changes in the political regimes. I was mentioning before the area of constraints on government power. Let me go a little bit into detail on some of the countries that experienced most decline in this area. So most importantly, Egypt is a country that uh, showed probably the biggest decline this year. However, there are other countries that experience as well significant declines such as Brazil. When we look at five years, we also see that the countries are not necessarily the same, but there are also countries that have continually been deteriorating over the years. Importantly, uh, countries such as China, uh, Poland, Hungary, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Egypt, and Nicaragua. This is a picture, this is a picture that is similar to the one that I show about the rule of law, but for factor one, constraints on government power. The picture here is more pronounced than the one that I showed before. Here, the countries that declined this year are more likely to have declined during the previous year, which is the countries at the quadrant in the left. When you look at the table at the right, what we will see is the scores of the countries and the distribution of countries over the years. So what we have seen is over the years, there are more countries with lower scores and fewer countries with higher scores over the years. Now let me go to some of the changes in various regions of the world. First, rule of law changes in Europe. So in Europe, the rule of law remains still strong. And when we look at larger, larger time horizons, uh, the European countries have actually shown improvements in rule of law over the year. However, last year, half of the European countries or half of the countries in Western Europe showed a decline in rule of law with countries such as the UK, France, Romania, Greece, Portugal showing in, uh, declines of more than 1% over the previous year. Importantly, two countries that I mentioned before such as Hungary and Poland have shown important declines over the year, both in rule of law and each one of the components, such as uh, constraints on government power and fundamental rights. Turning into Asia, as I was mentioning before, Malaysia is the country that improved the most over the previous year, followed by Indonesia. On the other side of the spectrum, uh, China and um, Mongolia were the countries that declined the most in the region. Looking into more detail at a comparison between China and Hong Kong, we see a contrasting picture. China declined uh, the previous year by 1.5%. And when we look at the longer time horizon, China has uh, declined in their performance of constraints on government power by uh, more than 20%. In contrast, Hong Kong declined by less than 1% and has shown um, strong rule of law and minor declines 
uh, over the years in the areas of constraints on government power and fundamental rights. Finally, going to Latin America, we see that the countries, the big countries in Latin America experience a decline in rule of law, significantly uh, Brazil and Mexico that experienced declines of more than 2% over the previous year. There are copies available and the report is available as PDF um, and online. Uh, and importantly, just we have the, uh, a new website where you can see uh, some of the results uh, and you can uh, the look at the data. We have interactive data. You can explore the rule of law performance for the 20, 128 countries. Look at the findings that I just went through. and compare the different uh, scores, look at the country profiles, look at the changes over time, select a country, uh, and so on. Thank you very much. And with this, I'm going to uh, give the, the floor uh, to um, Philippe um, uh, Leroux-Martin uh, so that he can moderate the panel that, that we have right now. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Alejandro, for um, this this presentation. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I want to uh, welcome everyone. My name is Philippe Leroux Martin. I'm the director for Governance, Justice, and Security here at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Um, I'd like to welcome everyone who is watching us online right now. Um, what we want to do this afternoon is to essentially proceed in two steps. We want, uh, first, I'll be moderating a discussion uh, with panelists and experts uh, where we will take a bit of time to dig into some of the specific insights and trends that we are seeing in the index this year. And then we want to move on uh, to a question and answers period. And so we invite you online to post your comments on uh, the chat feature on YouTube, uh, and then uh, please do so while we go through the discussion and we invite you to post your questions so that by the time we reach the question and answer period, we can answer some of those questions that you've posted. Um, so let's get started right away. I wanna turn to my panelists. I have the pleasure to welcome to USIP um, three people who have particularly important perspectives and sources of expertise to help us analyze some of the insights of the reports today. So I'm joined uh, first and foremost by my colleague, Maria Stefan. Maria is the director uh, for the Nonviolent Action Program here at USIP. I'm also joined by Maggie Lewis, Margaret Lewis. Um, Margaret is a professor of law at Seton Hall Law School. Uh, Maggie, thank you for joining us. And then Betsy Anderson. Betsy is the executive director of WJP. So thank you for joining me uh, today. Let's jump right into it. And um, I wanted to ask the first question and to get the conversation started by asking the first question to Maria. Um, and to preface the question, Maria, we've seen in the key findings that Alejandro presented to us um, a number of, 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 of very interesting insights. One, one that caught my attention is that 43% of the countries that were surveyed 
have witnessed a decline in an important indicator, which is the fundamental rights indicators. And then we've also seen that 66% of those countries have witnessed a, a decline with respect to this indicator in the last five years. And this, for me, caught my attention when thinking about your, your field because this indicator covers uh, fundamental rights like freedom of opinion, freedom of assembly, and the, there seems to be a suggestion there in the data that there is a closing of the civic space uh, worldwide. And um, I know that you just recently co-authored a piece uh, in which you explain why today's protests are somehow easier to organize and to put together but somehow more difficult or less, more difficult to succeed or less successful. So I was wondering when looking at the data, whether these two things are somehow tied. Are we, so my question to you is, are we really seeing a reduction or a, a closing of the civic space? And if so, how does that have an impact on nonviolent action and its strategy as well as its tactics? Well, thanks very much, Philippe. Um, yes, as we've heard, there does seem to be this um, unfortunate continuation of authoritarian resurgence globally and authoritarian practices, including restrictions on assembly, speech, and association. Um, we've seen crackdowns on activists who engage in peaceful protests around the world, including in many of the places that you mentioned where there had been, or Alejandro had mentioned, where there had been steady declines in Nicaragua, uh, Brazil, um, places like Zimbabwe. So we're definitely seeing an uptick on kind of government crackdowns um, of dissent around the world. But I think what is particularly noteworthy for me is that these declines in constraints on government power and declines in fundamental rights are steady. They've been accumula accumulating over time. This didn't just happen overnight. And that kind of brings, um, I think, reinforces an important point about um, you know, we're not seeing the onset of authoritarianism overnight. It's kind of this steady um, erosion of democratic norms, um, of authoritarian practices um, that start with dehumanizing opponents uh, that involve, um, you know, criminalizing dissenters, um, that involve, um, you know, going after political opponents using uh, spurious legal means, uh, attacking journalists. Um, so these are kind Kind of steady practices that I think we're seeing um, that are deepening in many countries around the world. Um, but also, it's not just the physical civic space that seems to be shrinking, it's also the cyberspace. And I think this is an important uh, development is that we're starting to see this um, export, as we, uh, Jonathan and I mentioned in the article, we're seeing an export in cyber repression tools, in surveillance, and so it's becoming easier in many ways to mobilize online, but also governments are getting very savvy and sophisticated at cracking down using these various tools and exporting it, like uh, China is exporting to different countries, including democracies around the world. So I think it's both the physical and the cyberspace that seems to be shrinking, but at the same time, we see this resurgence of protests, so people pushing back um, on these attempts to close civic space. Thank you. <clears throat> I, uh, thanks, Marie. I wanted to turn, and you, you just mentioned China, I wanted to turn uh, to, to Maggie and ask the following question. Um, when we look at the report and its findings uh, for the uh, Asia and the Pacific region, the report shows that there are a number of countries that have witnessed a decline 
in, in the rule of law, and be it Australia, Mongolia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and then more generally China as well, are identified in the index uh, as countries in the region that have witnessed uh, a certain decline. So you follow China particularly closely. And um, I, in, in our previous discussions on, on this issue, you, you pointed to the fact that when we think about China and the rule of law, it is particularly important to adopt what you call, I think, a multi-layered lens, uh, and that there are different layers at play um, and, and that are helpful in understanding uh, the situation or the, 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 the state of the rule of law in China. So can you tell us more about what you mean by these different lenses and what uh, these, uh, sorry, with these different layers and what these different layers tell us about the rule of law in China? Well, well thanks for having me. And I'm not bringing the good news today, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that. But uh, thank you for giving this opportunity to focus on China. It's the only country-specific uh, presentation. I... I think we need to start looking first domestically within China, like what's happening within China's borders. And that's been a concern for the rule of law for many years. When I first went to China in 1995, that was the time that you couldn't nail Jello to the wall and WTO and the internet was going to change everything and there was a tremendous sense of optimism. And I don't think that's completely gone. There's still a civil society that is trying so hard um, against all odds. And so I don't want to act like the ship has sailed and there's nothing, you know, there's no hope. Because there certainly is. But uh, while we were used to, those of us who work with China, seeing domestically cycles of repression and relaxation, what we've seen in the last, really, decade is continuing repression. And you know, I think some of this can be traced back to the Olympics when you think of the surveillance technology in 2008. And that was China's uh, chance. And, and Beijing really showed or started showing the world what it could do technologically with authoritarianism. And, and so with China today, you know, and particularly what I do working with lawyers and law professors, their space to even voice muted criticisms, you know, not directly uh, confronting the party state and calling for a fundamental change in government, but even more uh, toned down criticism. So for example, now, of course, with the coronavirus, uh, we've seen this so much where there's very little space to even think about saying that what Xi Jinping is doing is anything but fantastic. And whistleblowers like Dr. Li Wenliang, who uh, tried to bring attention to this issue much earlier, and his voice was totally squelched. And, and of course, you know, he unfortunately was he died because of the virus. So domestically, uh, it, it's a very hard time. But what's changed from you know, even 10 years ago is that increasingly we're looking at China's influence beyond its borders. And Hong Kong is a particular situation because Hong Kong is technically part of the PRC. It's under the basic law. It has its own legal structure, which is supposed to remain largely unchanged for the next 30 years. Uh, but, of course, we've seen a, a very, very difficult time in the last year. And it's, it's kind of amazing that we'll, in a few months, be to the one-year anniversary of the massive protests that came from the anti-extradition law. So I think Hong Kong is a special situation because it is technically part of the PRC. Uh, then you look at a next layer out, and China is increasingly having bilateral uh, relationships that a lot of this is around the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI, uh, Xi Jinping's signature initiative to 
have China have greater influence uh, economically and build these connectivity through sea routes, through land routes, and that has tremendous infrastructure investment in a number of countries around the world. Uh, some of this, you know, it's good that countries have infrastructure. We want them to have trains, we want them to have roads, but uh, right now what I think some scholars are doing that is so important is really drilling down to see what does that mean for those countries? What are they coming with that? What is the sort of practices with respect to labor? Uh, what sort of debt are these countries taking on? Is that debt on terms that they can handle? And so those bilateral relationships are also something which is increasingly under scrutiny because when the money shows up from Beijing, it's not coming with, and we expect you to give your workers a voice, and we expect there to be dispute resolution that's free and fair. So it doesn't have some of the package that when we look back to like the Washington consensus, we would have hoped would come along. And then even a layer beyond that, uh, multilaterally, China's become a much bigger player. Um, I'm particularly concerned about the UN Human Rights Council, uh, and we just had China's Universal Periodic Review, which involved a number of countries saying positive things about what China has done in the last five years. And we also had some very critical voices, both from some countries like Australia or you know, Canada, and also from civil society. Uh, but at this point, not only are we not seeing as much pushback as I might like to see. We're seeing China's language as far as win-win cooperation, uh, common destiny for humankind, putting the right to development over other fundamental rights and even saying that is the fundamental right. And, and I am not seeing uh, perhaps the pushback I would hope to see from the international community that Beijing's definition of human rights doesn't change the international definition of human rights. Thank you, Maggie. To stay more with our geographical focus, I wanted to turn to Betsy. And another point that I think the index seems to be suggesting, and, and uh, Alejandro mentioned that specifically in this presentation, is Europe. And if you look at Western Europe, we seem to be seeing an interesting dynamic in Western Europe, whereas some of the top performers on the index are Western European states. But then at the same time, the index seems to be suggesting or showing that uh, approximately half of the Western European states have seen a decline uh, in the rule of law. So that's what I wanted to ask you. Um, if you could help us understand or analyze these specific trends. And so wh wh what is going on there? And should we pay close attention to what's going on in, in Europe on the basis of, of this year's indexes? findings. Thank you, Philippe. And let me join my colleagues in thanking uh, you and USIP for this collaboration, which is uh, really a terrific partnership for WJP. Um, this is a really interesting and important question, I think. Um, as, as Alex mentioned uh, uh, and, and Maria uh, uh, underscored, one of the things that we see in addition to the fact that there is uh, this global trend of more states with declining rule of law than improving, we also see persistence in those trends, particularly with respect to constraints on government powers. Uh, the third uh, significant uh, uh, development that jumps out at me in this year's index is that these trends are not just where we would expect them to be in states that get labeled as authoritarian. Um, but in fact, we are seeing these trends in all types of countries, all income groups of countries, democracies, established rule of law states, as well as those that are less free. 
And what you have described as happening in Europe is really maybe exhibit A um, of that and is, is quite concerning. Um, a, for the rule of law in Europe, uh, in those countries, um, particularly in Poland and Hungary, where it is most egregious, but also in a number of other states as well. It's also, I think, very concerning for uh, the broader neighborhood, uh, the uh, EU accession states, and, um, and other partners of, of Europe, and that it might engage in its diplomacy. Um, as Maggie has described, there's a, a bit of a global competition now about governance models, and we look to Europe uh, to really play a leadership role it has for two decades, particularly in its neighborhood, played a very powerful role in incentivizing reform um, for states um, to join the EU or to join the European community. Uh, of states, and we see that commitment, that consensus weakening um, within the EU and um, in its dialogue with its neighbors. Now, the situation in, in Poland and Hungary has become so acute that it has been a bit of a wake-up call in Brussels, and now you see a lot of action on that front, the development of accountability mechanisms, uh, infringement uh, enforcement mechanisms, and a new rule of law monitoring mechanism that is being put in place. So that's welcome. In fact, we are to roll out our rule of law index in Brussels next week um, to provide this data as an input to those conversations that are very important for uh, European states and, and uh, the broader um, set of states that are in dialogue with Europe. So if I hear you well, it seems that it's not all bleak because we seem to be painting a rather bleak picture in a lot of the trends and the comments on the, on the trends. But there are a number of positive um, things happening in the EU's attempt to institutionally respond to a number of challenges that it sees either within its own membership or outside uh, would be one of those trends. But I wanted to focus on the bright spots and, and, and because I think it is important to focus on the bright spots um, and, and go back to uh, Maria um, and ask Maria, it, I'm sure that in the field, when you look at the field of nonviolent action and you think about the, 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 the trends in the rule of law, that it's not just bad news. What, what are the bright spots when you look at nonviolent action and the, the, the activists and, and, and how in some cases this year it still managed to have a very positive impact on a number of, um, of issues that are important for people who care about the rule of law? Well, I think, you know, the main bright spot is that people are pushing back. Um, and we're seeing a surge of citizen-led protests um, and movements around the world. In fact, um, we're probably living in one of the most contentious times in human history with um, a massive uptick in the number of protests and also the number of major campaigns over the past few years. Um, and, you know, this is happening in authoritarian states, in democracies, in backsliding democracies. Frankly, one of the most um, troubling trends um, 
um, that I gleaned from, from this report and also last year's is that, you know, democracies are being subverted from within, that, you know, most authoritarians that arise, they are elected, you know, they're, and, and then they gradually, you know, do away with, with fundamental rights and freedoms, and that can make it very difficult for people to protest and engage and organize because it's not happening overnight. But, I mean, on the one hand, last year alone, in 2019, at the end of the year, we saw, um, you know, three heads of government who were forced to, to agree to step down in Iraq, in Lebanon, um, in Bolivia following mass protest movements, um, in a place like Chile, which was considered an oasis of stability um, in Latin America, but yet where there's massive inequality. Um, we saw protests that were triggered by an increase in subway fares um, that led to a dramatic spread, and now you know the government is forced to address corruption. Um, they're even talking about revising their constitution um, to make it more in, in line with um, democratic practices. And so you have these positive examples. Two of the most, the most ho hopeful spots probably were um, the people power movements in Sudan and Algeria. I mean, in these cases, kind of um, major military dictatorships were challenged successively by unarmed civilian protesters. So I think, you know, people are, are pushing back all over the world, and that's probably one of the bright spots. And... The temptation, thanks, Marie. The temptation would be to ask Maggie about Hong Kong because I think you did not mention Hong Kong as part of your as of your list. But let me open up the question a bit more, and Maggie, feel free to talk about Hong Kong if you want. But for you, what the what would the bright spots be for you when you think about China and the region and uh, more generally? And I know in previous conversations that you talked about Taiwan being an illustration of. Uh, what you, I think, uh, call the beacon of hope in the region. It's, what do you mean by this? Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and Taiwan is not in the report, and I and I hope that uh, there will be funding available uh, in the future to include Taiwan because it's it's a, a shot of adrenaline and hope to go there. I was just in Taiwan in January for the presidential election, and uh, it was it was a celebration, and, and you had a free, fair, efficient election. We went to one of the schools where people voted, watched them as they put out the little stools for people to sit there literally while they pull out one piece of paper at a time, announcing the votes and put marks on the board. I mean, this is direct democracy. And, and there were, it was really touching. And we had grown men in our delegation crying as parents were there with their little kids. And these were parents who probably, you know, they were born under martial law because it was until 87 and really until the early 90s in the Outer Islands that Taiwan was under martial law. And their first direct presidential election was 1996. So I think with all this backsliding and, and you know, feeling like the light is kind of dimming, uh, it's, it's great to see a place where it, it really is a bright light. And, and I think that we need to celebrate those moments and, and think about what's going right there. One thing that is going really right in Taiwan is about disinformation. And this is, of course, a huge concern for every democracy. You know, how do we get our information when we're making choices in elections? And we went to a, a place called the Taiwan Fact Check Center, which is a non-governmental organization working with the government and trying to find out not just politically uh, aspects that are disinformation, but health claims, uh, food safety claims. And they're actually working with Facebook and Google. And if a post on Facebook has been found to be uh, untrue, they can gray it out, put a link to a report, and actually ping that report back to people who have forwarded it 
to explain why it's disinformation. And I think the U.S. could learn a lot from this. You know, how do you, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube necessarily when that bad information's out there, but how do you slow down its spread? Thanks. Um, Betsy, I wanted to give you an opportunity as well to share what are your, your own bright spots. When, so when you, and you have a, a very strong and intimate grasp of the, of the, of the index and its findings. Where's the bright spot in the data when you look at, at all of this from your vantage point at WJP? Right. Um, well, I am, I'm an optimist, so I like this question. And uh, I, I am drawn immediately to the high performers, and I want to know what's going on there. And I think these are cases this year that um, reflect some of the, the points made by my colleagues here, Malaysia and Ethiopia, two countries where we've seen uh, pretty dramatic political change in the last um, couple of years, um, to no small degree attributable to people power kinds of movements uh, and, and bottom-up accountability, which is very encouraging. And, and that's typically what we see in the index data. Normally, countries don't change very much year to year. Where you see a big change is when there's been a regime change. Um, and so that's the good news. The, the maybe little storm cloud on the horizon is that those windows of opportunity, that change is often pretty short-lived. Um, and particularly countries that are emer emerging from sometimes decades of poor governance, there can be pent-up grievances and impatience um, that make it uh, difficult to govern and the opportunity to see lasting change and, and rule of law regimes that are sustainable um, is pretty narrow. And so that would be my cautionary note is, is look at those places where we see um, uh, real uh, uh, jumps in the data and opportunities for change, and that's where we should be focusing and investing. So I wanted to end with you, um, since we're looking forward. Um, and a big part of the interest in the index is to inform not only the countries themselves, the states themselves, but a number of actors who are willing to strengthen the rule of law to um, be able to gauge uh, trends and indicators and then take a number of decisions as to what where to focus their efforts. So I want to end our discussion with you before we move to questions from, from our uh, audience um, and ask you, According to you, where should our efforts go as we look forward on the basis of this year's results? Mm -hmm. What should we be focusing on? Mm -hmm. Well, um, there are lots of, lots of candidates for that. But what I would suggest is if we look at the rule of law index, there are eight factors of the rule of law. Um, and the first four of those factors are all factors that go to constraints on government authority in various ways, things that the government shouldn't do. So it's constraints on government power, it's absence of corruption, it's fundamental rights, it's open government. Um, those are the first four factors. The second four factors are more affirmative responsibilities of governments. So it's regulatory enforcement and order and security, civil justice and criminal justice. And when you look at the data over the last five years, and there's a chart in the insights booklet that Alex put uh, on the screen there briefly, uh, that shows this over over the last five years, quite strikingly, we're doing much better on the second four factors than we are on the first four factors. 
So governments are doing better at the, their affirmative responsibilities than on the things that they are supposed to constrain themselves from doing. And so that would be where I think we should redouble our efforts. Look at those first four factors and think about what are the interventions, what are the tools in our toolbox that we can use to move the needle on issues like constraints on government authority. How do we build an independent and sustain an independent judiciary? Um, what is going to be effective at lasting respect for fundamental rights, open government, uh, and, and combating corruption? And on that, I would maybe put, put it back to you and USIP. I think um, this is where this institution has some real strengths in its research and analysis uh, about what works. I think the work that you all have done on fragility in particular uh, can be very valuable to us as we think about what can work in countries of opportunity, um, particularly on those first four factors. Thank you. Well, that's why we're co-hosting this and we're taking good notes of the findings of the uh, of the index every year, uh, and I can guarantee that we will continue doing this. Uh, but thanks, Betsy. I wanted to now move to the question and uh, the question period, and I want to again ask uh, our audience to uh, go on the YouTube chat function or feature on your YouTube page, and please post any comments or any questions that you have uh, for our panelists here today. And then we will start answering um, those questions. I will ask Alejandro to join the panels, uh, the panelists as well, because some of your questions might be linked to some of the key findings in the report. So we've asked Alejandro to join us to be able to answer some of those questions. Um, so let's move to question number one. Yes, uh, this is David Young again from USIP. Thanks to you YouTubers out there, we have quite a few questions are all good. So to facilitate a bit, I'm going to group them into groups of two or three and then pose them to all the panelists. So the first group really, they're more methodological than um, bleeding into uh, uh, political technical questions. So let me just talk about them. The first question comes from Marcelo and he, <coughs> asking a methodological question about um, the, the significance of uh, changes, whether declines or improvements of less than 1%. He asks, should these be, should these be considered significant changes or are they more like in a public opinion survey, the, the kind of uh, margin of error, plus or minus margin of error? That's a great question. A similar, now this gets into broader questions about the hydraulics of the the uh, index. Michelle wants to know what are the main factors that lead to positive changes in rule of law? And here I interpret to be uh, really among the eight factors, the eight drivers, are they all co-equally weighted in the index? And then finally we get to uh, the beginning of the profound questions of uh, causation. And uh, a colleague from Uruguay asks, on behalf of his very small country, in the data do you find over the years that 
small countries are as successful as large countries in imp having good rule of law, improving rule of law? Is there something innate in small countries or in large countries that that uh, that benefit it in having good rule of law? So let me stop there. So I think Alejandro and maybe Betsy, you're you're better positioned to answer those questions. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you very much for the questions. These are very good questions. Um, the first question about uh, the change, many countries are changing less than 1%. Uh, that is true. The, the way that we, so that we present the results, we use a band. So we are, have been talking about countries that improve, countries that decline, and countries that remain stable. So this is for presentation purposes to look at broader trends. Now, looking specifically at countries and all the results actually hold when we um, do these tests. For each one of the countries, we conduct a statistical test to see whether the changes are indeed statistically significant. So we do uh, bootstrapping exercises to create uh, margins of error, and then against those, we compare whether the changes are statistically significant or not. The patterns, the global patterns that we have shown hold regardless of whether we look at a, a bands of let's say 0.5%, 1%, uh, only those that are statistically significant, the patterns uh, that we have shown in the data actually persist. So these are pretty robust, uh, the fact that more countries are declining than improving and so on. Simply what it changes is the number of countries that we classify as improving or declining. The big changes actually remain the same and, and are, all the changes are statistically significant. Um, with regards to the second question, the whether what are the main factors that lead to changes in rule of law, as uh, it was pointed out, uh, all the factors are weighted equally. The answer really depends on the country. In some cases, the countries that have experienced big changes, what we see is that in almost all factors, uh, there are either positive or negative changes. Um, however, uh, just we have seen in the countries that have declined the most in rule of law, particularly those that have declined in areas related to the constraint of authority, we see declines usually in the first four factors uh, that are driving the change. Another aspect that is important is the issue of security that we haven't really talked much, but that can drive uh, important changes in countries, particularly countries that are uh, affected by conflict or uh, by terrorist attacks and so on, just given the way that the variables are codified and usually just how countries can move from one year to the next very abruptly, that is something that can actually affect significantly the scorch insecurity and that have an, impo an important effect in the overall rule of law situation in the country. Uh, with respect to the third question about smaller countries versus larger countries, I think just based on the data, this is a difficult question just because we have, we have variation in, in just we have good countries that are smaller countries, there are larger countries and so on. Uh, probably it is true from a reform perspective that it's easier to reform a country that is smaller than a larger one. But in the data, just this is not, not a pattern that we observe whether just larger countries are performing better than than, than smaller countries. I think there is variation. We have countries that are performing well, countries that are performing bad, so it's not really a driving, a driving factor. A more important factor is economic development. In general, countries that are richer tend to perform 
much better than countries that are poorer, although there is significant variation even within income brackets. Thank you, Alejandro. So let's move maybe to another set of questions from our audience okay. online. I think this set uh, will involve more an answers across the panel. The This is uh, really getting at some of the political drivers of positive rule of law change. And it's the what I would call the inside versus outside drivers. On the inside, one questioner wants to know, uh, well, well, she or he poses it well. It's a she, it's from Michelle. What's more important in the view of the panelists in driving good rule of law change? Civil society activism, I'm assuming from within the country, or outside influences like um, development agency donors? Uh, a, a variation of this question is somebody posing uh, a, the broadest question, meaning, okay, can the rule of law within countries really be influenced, encouraged by our global system of international law? Because that global system, in this questioner's viewpoint, uh, accepts national sovereignty, and national sovereignty trumps uh, kind of domestic human rights. So that's a profound question. Then there's a group of questions asking about different variations of external international uh, influences. One asks about uh, the EU and its planned rule of law mechanisms like Article 7 and the European Court of Justice procedures. Would these be important external drivers for improving the rule of law? Another question uh, from a Central American colleague who works for a small NGO. We're a small NGO with very few resources. What can we do to most positively influence the rule of law in our country. And finally, a colleague from the US government asks about uh, goal 16 of the Sustainable Development Goals and whether as a normative tool this might be helpful in promoting the rule of law. OK, so we have a lot to unpack <laughs> from that. Let's, in order to maybe uh, tackle these questions. Let's start. Uh, the, 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 um, our viewers seem to be focusing on, let's call domestic or inside internal factors and then external factors. Let's use this as a boundary to field some of those questions. And let me start with asking <coughs> our panelists about the domestic or the internal factors. Uh, there were questions about civil society, about small organizations. Um <coughs> uh, sovereignty as well and 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 this being used as a shield or as a, as 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 um as, uh, that this interplay between sovereignty and and international uh, human rights law uh, so anyone who would feel comfortable addressing some of those questions let's start with the internal questions first and then we can tackle the more external factors afterwards um Maria, do you want to jump in? The role of civil society, I assume, is something you, yeah. Sure, so the, the question was about civil society and the role of civic activism, and I think um, it plays a critical role in promoting rule of law, um, demanding accountability, um, pushing back against corruption. So I think that preserving and supporting the watchdog function within civil society is critically important. 
And this too is where kind of the movements are important, the ability of citizens to organize and bring together diverse groups to be able to effectively uh, demand accountability and to apply pressure um, on governments, um, I think is a critically important part of uh, improving the rule of law. And whether it's pushing forward freedom of information, demand for freedom of information laws, whether it's pushing for accountability of um, government officials who have engaged in corruption, um, I think this pressure from below is a really important part of um, uh, improving rule of law globally. And does size matter? Does it really, one of the question was, we're small, we have very little funds. Uh, does size matter in, in, in having an impact on strengthening the rule of law? I mean, size, uh, I'm thinking, you know, often organizations not, are not working autonomously. And so the power comes through the coalition building and forming alliances with other organizations, groups, and individuals. Um, and so there's a lot that a small number of individuals and organizations can do to kind of um, apply pressure and focus. So there's a lot that that little organization can, can do. Yeah. Maggie, you wanted to add something? No, I, I think this is, you know, China watchers spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's going on in Zhongnanhai, the, the leadership compound in Beijing and we don't we don't know it's pretty opaque but um, but certainly in China there, there can be reforms from within there's even though Xi Jinping is the most powerful single leader we've seen since Deng Xiaoping it's there are other people in the top leadership and there's always questions especially with a crisis like the coronavirus so far he hasn't been shaken at least visibly but there could be forces from within but there could also be forces from the outside and civil society again it's still going in China it's difficult it's small. It's been beaten down. It's harder to have foreign interactions since the foreign NGO law went into effect now about four years ago. But it's very creative. So, for example, I was just uh, reading today about the Harvey Weinstein verdict, and not only that, but he was just sentenced to 23 years. Now, China had its own Me Too movement at the same time, and because it was getting censored, uh, people got creative. And so it would turn into Rice Bunny. And why in the world would Rice Bunny be Me Too? It's because the word for rice in Chinese is me, and bunny is tu, tuza, so Me Too. Rice Bunny sounds like Me Too. And that was a way to get around the censors. And I was listening to a podcast on New Voices today, which is through uh, SubChina, and Dee Wong, who's a graduate student at University of Wisconsin, and she does LGBT issues in China. And she's still, you know, talking about what's happening within China with the LGBT movement. It is there, it is nascent, it's beaten down, but it's still there. Thank you. Betsy, Alejandro, did you have anything um, to add on the more internal drivers? Um, any thoughts? Well, I, I would just uh, echo what the others have said here, that, it, that I think it, as between external and internal, I think both are important, but probably internal is more important. Um, and I would also maybe circle back to something that Joe said in, at the very beginning, and the idea that there are reformers everywhere. So civil society is key, uh, of course, but also we need to be looking for uh, reformers in uh, throughout government in different agencies um, and and finding those people and supporting them. Yeah, just to reiterate uh, what Betsy said a few minutes ago, uh, the importance of political transitions and leaderships. So something that we see in the index is the big changes usually happen when there is a 
transition, just an immediate transition. Uh, when there are coalitions, when the government is new and they are to, trying to promote reform. So that's when a lot of the changes are happening. Those try to, uh, usually dilute a little bit over the following years. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, it's important actually to capitalize on those windows of opportunity. Just the one small thing I would say of where kind of bottom up the pressure and the reformist networks come together is the whole idea of like promoting positive accountability. So, um, you know, in integrity idols in different places where civil society is voting and mobilizing around accountable um, government officials and rewarding them with positive action with rewards. So there can be kind of positive incentives as well coming from the bottom up. Great. I wanted to move to the external factors maybe very briefly because we've heard from our viewers um, references to international human rights law or international human rights institution. And I know that Maggie talked about uh, some of those instruments and how certain actors are now playing a, a stronger uh, role in shaping some of uh, <coughs> the outputs in some of those institutions. But if we can spend a bit of time on the external factors, uh, and, and f feel free, we've, we've heard about SDG 16. Can this be a mobilizing uh, process or movement? Um, Maria, I know that you do a lot of research on external or support to uh, nonviolent actors or, or, or processes from other actors as well. So if, the, if you have any thoughts, uh, feel free to share. But any ideas or thoughts that came that came up when you heard those questions from our viewers online about the external factors or drivers that ca that can uh, have an impact? Maybe with Maggie to change the order a little bit. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I I get worried when I hear um, because of sovereignty that you're rejecting international human rights and and because it's sovereignty is not a shield from outside scrutiny. And so China, uh, which is really, as I said, pushing this right to development and saying that instead of that human rights are indivisible and you know they're interrelated, saying we're gonna prioritize rights. We're gonna say first we're gonna do development and then maybe down the line we'll deal with civil and political rights. And that is antithetical to the basis upon which the international human rights regime is, is, was put together after World War II. You, you have all of them together, it's a, it's a basket. And so here, um, of course, there's going to be some differentiation amongst countries. It's not going to be one size fits all entirely. But at the same time, uh, when you think of things like freedom of expression, you can restrict freedom of expression in very limited ways, but you cannot use um, security as a way to restrict people, for example, who are promoting democracy in a peaceful manner. And we think back to um, empty chair was mentioned. I think Liu Xiaobo and of course who was the Nobel uh, laureate from China, and he was unable to attend because he was imprisoned in China, and so at the ceremony there was an empty chair. And he just advocated peaceful thoughts about what might China's future be other than the current government. And that's where I get worried that sovereignty and you have to look at Chinese characteristics is going to be used as a way to repudiate, repudiate these fundamental norms that the international community has worked so hard to put in place. 
I mean, and just um, on the SDG 16, I think, you know, the advantage of it is that all governments have signed up for the sustainable development goals. And so it's something that, you know, the international community can mobilize around. And you're seeing examples even domestically in, in cities like Pittsburgh, where it's local, it's cities who are leading the effort to hold governments accountable to the SDG goals um, and SDG 16 on um, inclusive, peaceful and just society. So I think, you know, one of the most important roles outside actors can play is supporting an, an enabling environment for peaceful mobilization um, and so that citizen groups, movements and the like can thrive. And so using everything from the international uh, human rights declarations to SDG 16 to keep civic space open, to enable the environment for nonviolent change um, and to put pressure on those governments who are restricting civic space. So if I hear you well, there could be international or multilateral norms or norms that are set at the international or multilateral level, but domestic actors or actors from within can use those norms in order to demand accountability or a strengthening of the rule of law within their own domestic or internal context. So the, so the external and the internal are ultimately uh, linked, if I hear you well. Um, we have maybe one more minute for... Straight from the headlines and op-ed pages, and because let me direct it to to Maggie and to Betsy. So the question is: Are stronger rule of law countries better at addressing the coronavirus, and if so, why? Sure. Um, stronger rule of law countries are uh, better at addressing the coronavirus, or should be better at at, at addressing the coronavirus, and why is that? Um, we, we, in fact, in the, in the rule of law index uh, data, one of the cohorts of professionals whom we survey um, are public health professionals. We ask them about how the rule of law is playing out in the public health sphere um, because the rule of law is so important to public health. Uh, things like corruption, transparency, trust in institutions, all play out in uh, a public health emergency like we're seeing right now. So we should see uh, better responses from the rule of law states. Now, there might be some folks who would say, gosh, in a, in a situation like this, um, maybe we want a little bit of a little authoritarianism. Some, you know, maybe being able to shut things down in a strongman kind of way is the solution. But that's a risky strategy. As we saw in the early days of this crisis in China, the flip side of that uh, approach is that uh, whistleblowers or that early uh, warner uh, of the crisis um, might be squelched in ways that really exacerbate the crisis. I think sometimes it's seen as we need the authoritarian government to then get everyone to listen to what needs to happen. And I, and I, I disagree with that because even though human rights, a lot of it is about the individual and individual rights, that doesn't mean you don't care about other people. I mean, fundamental human rights is about having empathy and compassion and thinking about how you think about the rights of the individual, but also how that makes the collective stronger. And, and so particularly with issues like the freedom of the press and transparency, that's all the more important when you do have a public health crisis. It's too early to say who's done the best job. I don't think we can have a scorecard at this point. This is a marathon, not a sprint to deal with the coronavirus. But um, you know, if I had to put my money down, I, I would go on the more open governments. 
all the questioners and apologies to those who we didn't have time for. Great. Well, I want to thank, <clears throat> extend my thank you to all our listeners and people and our viewers online. So thank you for submitting your questions. Uh, we have a few more minutes, and I'm conscious of time here, uh, maybe for final thoughts. And I'll turn for each to each of the panelists and ask them if they want to share some final thoughts um, before uh, we um, finish. Yeah. Uh, let me start maybe with uh, Alejandro, and then we'll move this way just to change the dynamics a little bit. Yeah. Uh, no, very very short. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you to to our our audience. I invite everyone to actually uh, look at the report. Uh, as I mentioned before, beyond the global trends, I think the most interesting results are at the country level. So, which is important to look at what countries are doing, uh, just where the changes are, are coming from. So just invite the audience to, to look at those. Uh, well, I would second that and uh, particularly encourage folks to play with that interactive uh, new website that WJP has put the data on. Uh, I, I thought about drawing the audience to it at the outset, but then I, I thought it might distract um, folks from our conversation. Um, but have at it now. I have found it as addicting as my kids do video games. And uh, I think it, what we, we do this effort, this data collection, to stimulate discussion, to inform policymaking and, and activists and, and, and dialogue within societies about a path toward greater rule of law. And every society has that path to walk, and we encourage you to use this data um, in your work. And I, I'm going to put on my professor hat for a minute and say I hope that teachers will take advantage of this great, not just the written report, but the multimedia. And, um, and I'm always struck when I look at the report that it both has the thematic and then, as Alejandro was saying, the, the country-specific. And so I hope that uh, in the U.S., one thing that I'm, I'm deep down an area studies person. I was an East Asian studies person before a law person. And, and how important it is that we continue to emphasize area studies, regional studies, so that we have that deep expertise in places and not just in topics. And I guess I would just add there's, you know, definitely a gloomy picture, but I think there are some bright spots that ought to be focused to receive focus as well. And I think, um, you know, even in places where we're seeing declining rule of law, citizens are still pushing back and organizing and trying to change things. And I think highlighting their stories um, and giving them support um, and space uh, to continue to organize is something that I hope we can continue to do on the outside. Well, thank you very much to everyone. And on behalf of USIP and the World Justice Project, I want to thank uh, all our viewers for joining us today. Um, and please, uh, have <clears throat> um, you have all the tools at your disposal and go consult all of the information and the links that were mentioned today on the panel. These are very important subjects uh, and issues. And, um, and so you should have access to all that information on WJP's website. Uh, and, and we thank you for tuning in today. So thank you very much. And I want to thank our panelists and everyone involved in the organization of this uh, important event. And thanks to all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Uh -huh.